During the Labor Day weekend of 2019, Star Wars collectors from regions across the country and beyond had traveled to Fishkill, New York for an event hosted by the Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club. The event was titled The Annual and celebrated the best parts of collecting and the community. Sunday, September 1st. The day had been a busy one. In the morning, 80 collectors traveled to the home of Ron Salvatore to tour his world-class collection of some of the most legendary Star Wars prototypes and pre-production items in existence. In the afternoon, we headed into the nearby town of Newburgh for a boat cruise along the Hudson River. And after we returned, we walked to a restaurant on the shore for dinner and dessert. Around 10 o'clock that evening, I found myself in my hotel room, around a large rectangular dining table I had wanted to use during that weekend, but prior to that moment, couldn't find a proper use for it. It held the two cadet stormtrooper statues given out to attendees the previous night, along with some of the other swag and mementos I received. But on Sunday, it became the hub for an impromptu roundtable discussion recording. I was joined by seven others, California's Brian Angel, Nashville's Trent and Corey Bailey, Texas's Matt George, Pennsylvania's Bill Cable, and Georgia's Justin Haney and Jen Thunders. For approximately two and a half hours, we reflected on how special and connective the annual weekend had been for all of us. We shared our collecting journeys and how each of us found our way into the community of Star Wars enthusiasts. Beer bottles emptied. Champagne bottles found their way into the recycling bin. We talked. We reminisced. We laughed. Our time in Fishkill was coming to a close. But those final hours, which I had mistakenly assumed would consist of a good night's sleep, turned out to be just as exciting as those spent in the company of others across the entire weekend. This is part three of a series titled A Look Back at the Annual 2019. This is a recap of Sunday night's unexpected and epic adventures and a memorable ending to my time in Fishkill, New York. This is a celebration of what we collect and why we connect. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production.
All right, so as we sit around the table talking about fandoms, I, I, I always will call back like one of my favorite quotes from one of my biggest uh, fanboy moments ever is Kevin Smith. And, and one thing he's always said is, um, get out and skate. And what that means is he was always afraid because he was an overweight child. He was uh, an outcast because he was a comic book fan and a lover of Stan Lee and, and all these things. And, and his thing that he always regretted his entire life was he never played hockey. So the thing he's always preached his entire life in every one of his stand-ups, um, to, to every one of his fans of all of his movies... Um, is just get out and skate. Put this first skate on the ice and just step foot out and then you just coast and then you're there. All you got to do is take that leap of faith and get out and skate. And and that's something that's always resonated with me. And I think that's very uh, apparent in, in, in our hobby here. And it's not that, you know, a lot of people like to collect, but a lot of people, including myself for a long time, never got out and skated. We didn't approach the clubs. We didn't approach the rebel scums. We didn't approach the Facebook groups. Once once you just take that first step out on the ice, a whole world opens up and then uh, it's game on. So what you're saying is get out in Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. I just, or, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so fantastic. I'd like to, to thank all of you. I'd like to thank Corey, and I'd like to thank Justin, and I'd like to thank Jen, and Matt, and Bill, and Trent, and Brian for taking the time just to, to hang on a Sunday night here at the annual uh, to have this, this roundtable awesome discussion, uh, and just to share their hearts and their love for the, and passion for the company. A rectangular, sorry, rectangular. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and just, just for making a, another memorable thing something that I'm never going to forget and I hope you guys never forget as well too and and uh, I just I thank you for your friendship and thank you for the time that you guys spent so everyone here say good night here we go all right good night, good night. Good night. our round table chat ended around 12:30 that evening bringing us into Monday morning the eight of us gathered our belongings and returned to the lobby to meet up with the collectors who were still awake the lobby was empty and was quiet. The room off the lobby that would transform into the breakfast nook each morning was empty as well. Before we left to record the round table, it had been filled with collectors, relaxing after our dinner on the shore. They sat in that nook and shared humorous stories from past conventions and meetups, each speaking up as a notable memory surfaced. It had been nice to sit among them and to hear many of these stories for the first time, laughing with them until our faces hurt. It reminded me of sitting around the campfire and passing a guitar around and seeing which songs would surface that evening. It had been an enjoyable gathering, and as I mentioned earlier, I had only expected to leave it for about 20 minutes to record a chat with Matt, Brian, and the rest of the group. But once we were settled in around my table in my hotel room, we got into a groove, and I was more than happy to let that record play through to the end. We walked outside into the brisk coolness of the night to see if anyone was sitting along the patio tables having a midnight discussion. But nobody was outside either. It felt late, and the world around us was silent. 
we were about to head over to the I-84 diner, which had been our meet-up spot at the end of each night during the weekend. But we stopped in the middle of the parking lot, stunned to see the lights in the diner had been turned off. The windows that normally glowed a whitish yellow were an inky black, and it looked like the diner had been closed long before we left the hotel. It's probably closed for Labor Day, someone said. We were technically a half hour into the holiday at that point, and it was the only logical explanation that made sense to our tired minds. We stood a beat longer, trying to figure out what to do next. Brian and Trent pulled out their phones and located a diner that was still open. The Red Line Diner was a few miles from our hotel, and we decided to drive to it and eat there. A few things to note. I was 100% sober, which was a very interesting lens from which to watch the events of this night play out. I cannot speak for the other seven members of our party, but let's assume most, if not all, had been visited by the alcohol fairy. Drinks flowed freely as we recorded the roundtable over the previous two and a half hours leading up to our diner run. Brian who started the night in his Boba Fett socks and no shoes, still had no shoes on, even as we stood on the pavement of the parking lot. Oh, and his Boba Fett socks had little green capes attached to the backs, and they fluttered as he walked. There were eight of us, so we piled into two cars. As I mentioned, I was sober, which made me an obvious choice to be a designated driver. The other car was the Muppet Show. Brian assured me he was fine to drive, and he jumped into the back of Matt's rented roller skate of a car, the Toyota Yaris, as Justin and Jen climbed into the back seat. Bill had brought a half-finished beer bottle with him out to the parking lot, and I convinced him to leave it next to our parking spot and to finish it when he got back. I was trying to reduce the amount of things that could go wrong at this point, because it was starting to have that Adventures in Babysitting vibe to it. Or maybe Goonies. Bill sat in the back with Corey, and Trent sat up front with me. As I finished typing the diner's address into the GPS, I watched as Brian and Matt waved from the front seat, and Justin and Jen gave a wave as the Yaris sped off like someone punted a toy car down the driveway. As we drove to the diner, I remember wondering if any of us were going to wind up in jail that night. That's the kind of feeling the trip had at that point. The main goal, I had decided, was to not get arrested and to not die. And here's Matt in the car ahead of us to share the story he remembers from that drive. I will say that I was in the passenger seat while B.A. was driving. And for some reason, like what I remember most about the drive over was not the speed. It was for some reason I felt like there was like those those concrete dividers right by this, you know, dividing the two lanes of the street. I thought it would be a good idea to try to touch one of them while we were driving. (laughs) (laughs) And then I I couldn't touch it because it was too far away. And I didn't think like trying to stick all my body out the window was a good idea. But as I was pulling my arm back in for the last time and like abandoning all hope of ever touching it, a sign that I didn't even see like came within about like less than a foot of like, hitting my arm and i don't know what would have happened then i wouldn't have felt it but 
I would have ruined the night. It would have been a fun night. As we approached the diner, we somehow lost track of Brian and the Yaris. Trent was helping me locate the entrance, and Bill and Corey were keeping an eye out for the missing car we had been following only a minute earlier. Out of nowhere, the Yaris came barreling across our path, perpendicular to the direction in which I was driving, and swept into the diner. We followed it as it swerved like a race car around to the back of the diner, where we were instantly greeted by a swarm of seven police cars. Parked police cars. In the side window of the diner, I could see a fleet of officers sitting around a table for a midnight meal. Pulling into a spot, we got out, and I ran ahead to catch those who were in the Aris. We can't go in there, I pleaded. It'll be fine, Matt said. Brian has no shoes on, I replied. And Brian confidently said, I got this, and bounded up the steps into the diner. Recently, we reunited to do another roundtable discussion about that evening. During our chat, I asked everyone to think back and to assess their sobriety during that diner trip. From a 1 to a 10, with 1 being completely sober and 10 being, well, completely not sober. Here was Justin's response. I was, I was at the diner. I believe. <laughs> and, and I was transported there by Mario Kart. I remember. Uh, for those of you in the car, you might remember that. And um, we part- there were some turtle shells. There were turtle shells, out. bananas being thrown our way. And we decided to park behind the building because it would be safe right in front of the seven police officers. <laughs> It was a safety measure. <laughs> I feel like I feel like parking is generous, seeing as I like screeched into the spot. <laughs> and here was Jen's response. I remember being at the diner, but I was to the point that I apparently I brought a beer into the diner and was drinking in the open and didn't think that was like a problem until Justin was like, you can't have a beer in a diner. And I'm like, what? I'm drinking it. For the record, when we got out of the car, I said, there's seven police officers in front of us enjoying their dinner at the diner. Don't bring the beer in. And she goes, it's not a big deal. (laughs) So that's about an eight. (laughs) It could have been worse, but it could have been, you know, could have been better. The diner's manager, who was acting as the greeter, tried to seat us in the area where the cops were dining. We cut him off mid-sentence. Can we sit on that side of the diner, we asked, pointing to the opposite corner of the restaurant. I don't know if the manager figured putting us near the officers' tables would keep us in line or if he was oblivious to the fact that a group of hyper and out-of-their-mind Muppets, seven of which were still wearing shoes, were standing in front of him. After a beat, the manager nodded, and we followed him. We walked past a row of businessmen lined up at the diner's counter, still in their skinny, sharply cut suits, and looking disheveled and exhausted. To this day, I still wonder where they came from and what they were doing before they stopped in the diner for the evening. The manager put us along the window on the left side of the building, and a waitress helped him arrange two small tables next to a four-seater. I sat at one end, next to Corey, and across from Matt, who sat next to Trent. Bill and Brian took the middle table, and Justin and Jen sat at the one next to it. 
At some point, Corey and Brian switched seats so Corey could be closer to Jen. We talked Cartoon Network shows, what we were going to order, and the magic of Michael Jackson's thriller. That's awesome. Yeah. I love stuff like that. Nice. But the, the premise is, it's like Johnny Quest, except it's 20 years after, and Johnny Quest is an older guy, and... A failure at this point. And he has kids. And he has kids, or, yeah. Oh, I just put it Yeah. Adventure Brothers is so. The Monarch is my favorite. Oh, man. Doctor Girlfriend, man. Well, I haven't done. I do a Doctor Girlfriend cosplay, actually. Okay. Because, um, you know, I can do the voice. <laughs> my voice already sounds like anyway. <laughs> no, it doesn't. We spend about an hour and a half at the diner. The second part of our meal transitioned into a memorable collector's conversation. We went around the table, sharing our memories of seeing episode one in theaters in 1999, and the excitement that we felt in the weeks, days, and hours leading up to that first prequel film. In between bites, Matt pulled out his phone and showed us some of his recent and epic acquisitions. And we took turns telling the stories behind some of our own amazing finds as well. The meal at the diner was one of my favorite moments of the day. Getting to talk to Brian, Trent, Matt, and everyone else in a relaxed but lively setting really helped to connect us even further. And sharing stories about collecting is something we can't do with just anyone. But when you're in the company of friends who share that same connection and passion, there's a sense of excitement and understanding that becomes electric. Sure enough, the first half of that movie is like unwatchable. Now, the last half of the movie is actually really good. Especially the last... Much not how it happens to fight. Yeah. But that first half is so bad. Anything with the, with the Trade Federation, just I just can't watch it. Yeah, it's just awful. Did you feel it when you left? Did you feel like the last two weeks before that were worth it? Absolutely. I wouldn't trade that two-week period for anything. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That's more special than anything. We should yeah. probably close out soon because... It's tomorrow? Yeah, it's 2 a.m. and cool. we'll assign for them. Well, I'm supposed to get the ride at 10 a.m. tomorrow to Yeah, yeah. We paid the check, said goodbye to our very kind and sweet server, and grabbed our belongings. Without any prompting from any of us, Brian ran a few feet toward the tile of the entranceway and slid the entire length of it on his cape socks, almost right up to the manager of the diner. In his charismatic and playful way, Brian finished his maneuver by smiling at the manager, thanking him for a great night, and strolling out through the main doors. The drive back from the diner was much calmer than our earlier trip. Trent, Corey, Bill, and I had watched Brian, Matt, Justin and Jen take off in the Yaris. And we followed them until the Yaris suddenly disappeared 
again. Yeah, we just got smoked by uh, them by making the that's what happens when you don't wear shoes. You can go faster. <laughs> he has capes. That is honestly one of the funniest things, though. A grown man wearing just socks at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> with, capes with capes on them. Just sliding past the guy who owns the diner. It's like, It's like risky business or something. Yes, but sexier for sure. Absolutely. I'm afraid of seeing like the Yaris the coming this way. At <laughs> <laughs> you just... should be afraid regardless because it's a Yaris. Yeah, yeah. It's like a little Smurf car. Who knows what's happening? Oh, California Smurf driving a California Smurf car. Seriously, life just wouldn't be as much fun without Brian Angel. <laughs> I agree with that. I concur. As we approached the hotel, the four of us came to a surprising revelation. I think I just did. What was yeah, that? Yeah. Fish kill, that's our exit. That's it. It was lots of fun. I should probably be worried that it was uh, recorded for posterity. I will say though, the strongest police presence in this town seemed to be at that diner. So. <laughs> all three of them yeah, all were there. Were, cars were running and stuff, well, and they were like, we're yeah. ready. And the good thing is, if something wants to happen, we just call Pete. He said he just calls his buddy. Oh, they're good. Yeah. Apparently Pete knows all the cops, or his yep. dad does, so. Somehow I think Mr. Angel would have gotten us out of it, though. He'd be like, look. He'd be like, see these socks? <laughs> you see these socks? <laughs> he would have been like, watch them low, watch you know, them go. You know what would happen is, they would make a, they would make each one of us get out of the car for like a lineup or whatever, and then he would just run and just like jump in the, either the ours or the police car. And, <laughs> like, <laughs> and they would chase him and we'd be all yep. scotch-free. Or scotch-free. <laughs> scotch-free. Scratch-free or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, it's 2.30 in the morning, I'm tired. Yeah, amen. I'm never scotch-free, man. I always have some scotch on me. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> what is it they do, they used to put on furniture? Scotch-proofing? Is the diner open? No. It looks like it. Yeah. It looks like portions are open. There are people in there. Did, we just... Did they lie to us this whole time? Hey, we at least got to experience a, a different one. Yeah, yeah. Wait, did, seriously, do we, we, we look at the diner from the, the area where it was closed off and, and blacked out? Yes. That's so have, awesome. Yeah. We are so dumb. I'm worried about getting there. <laughs> I think your spot's gone. Is and it? you were sober, so you don't have any uh, no excuse here. Oh, yeah, we're back. Beautiful. The front matter space. Oh, your beard's there, too. <laughs> you can finish it. All right. We arrived back at our hotel around 2.30 a.m. As we filed out of our cars, still continuing our conversations, Bill walked over to the spot where he had left his half-empty beer bottle. He picked it up and drank the rest, and the eight of us headed toward the hotel's entrance. None of us were ready to call it a night just yet. 
It's a bit fuzzy, but I remember someone followed up on the discussion that began at the diner about Michael Jackson and asked Jen to do the full thriller dance. She quickly and happily obliged, and Justin played the classic 80s song on his phone. After Jen finished, she offered to teach the dance to Brian and Trent, who joined her. As they rehearsed the steps, I filmed it, laughing and cheering them on with Bill and Matt. (laughs) Yes! Absolutely! Now imagine this. You're asleep in your room at the Comfort Suites, and you wake up, realizing you left something important in your car. So you put your shoes on, and sleepily wander into the lobby in your pajamas, and out into the parking lot. But wait, what's this you see under the bright lights and awning at 2.30 in the morning? Why, it's your own private concert. A dancer joined by two other collectors who are completely out of step and maybe out of their minds and desperately trying to follow her moves, motivated by adrenaline and friendship and, of course, alcohol. And one of them is still shoeless. And for some reason, someone is standing off to the side playing Thriller through an iPhone at 2.30 in the morning. The ridiculousness of that moment brought a smile to my face and I couldn't stop laughing. It was a joyous way to end the night. And that moment, like the rest of the events that followed after the round table, wasn't planned. Certainly wasn't planned. It just happened. And that was wonderful. The eight of us stayed outside, talking until our conversations finally wound down. We entered the hotel, took the elevator up together, and said our goodbyes as it stopped on each floor. As the elevator climbed, I looked at Brian, Corey, Trent, Bill, Matt, Justin, and Jen. We smiled to each other, knowing we would be talking about that adventure for years to come. I hugged those who stepped off the elevator with me onto the third floor, thanked them for a wonderful night, and headed back to my room. Once I got to my door, I turned back to watch the rest of them walk to their hotel rooms. In that moment, I realized that my time with them was truly ending, and I wanted to capture a mental snapshot of the remaining few seconds. Regarding our adventure... The main goal had been accomplished. None of us had been arrested. And thank the Lord, we all lived to see another day. And that day would begin again for all of us in only a handful of hours. The door to my room shut with a firmness that echoed across the walls. I walked into the sleeping area and turned the television on, lowering the volume as not to wake anyone in the adjacent rooms. I hadn't truly come down yet. It was like riding a long moving escalator at an airport and then walking onto solid ground where the rhythm changes abruptly and you are left feeling disoriented. The inside of my head was currently waging its own civil war. I felt like an overtired child, 
ready to collapse, and yet the adrenaline and joy from our evening was still pulsing through my veins. I decided to drain the remainder of my energy by packing my suitcase and bags, leaving as little as possible for the morning, and arranging everything to take to my car for my drive home. A number of the club members and attendees planned to meet at the I-84 diner for breakfast before they left Fishkill to head to Yehuda Kleinman's home in Queens. Although it meant that I wouldn't be able to sleep long, I set my alarm because I didn't want to miss my last group event of the weekend. As I packed, the moments of that evening played in a highlight reel across my mind. I still marveled over the fact that an impromptu idea like a roundtable discussion had actually occurred, and had actually been successful. I couldn't have planned it, and was glad I didn't. We just went with what the night brought us. It turned into the first chapter of what had been a true relationship builder, an adventure that was wildly raucous, wildly funny, and wildly connective. We talked about Star Wars and collecting, but we also shared personal stories about ourselves and our lives with one another. We had moments of insanity, like the drive to the diner, but also deep and connective quieter moments during our round table and during our meal. The picture in my mind zoomed out to reveal the weekend as a whole, and as I continued packing, my eyes suddenly clouded with tears. The lyrics to a Pearl Jam song called Smile surfaced just as suddenly as if in response. The words rolled across my lips, and I started to sing quietly as I collected the clothes around my room. Don't it make you smile? Don't it make you smile? When the sun don't shine, it don't shine. The lyrics to the song originated from a note that a friend of the band left in Eddie Vedder's lyric notebook at the end of a tour. It was a letter of friendship, one tinged by the pain of saying goodbye, but filled with the happiness of having been together, even for a short time. Often, it isn't until we're home and return to the rhythms of our normal lives that we look back on these unique trips and events and realize how special they really were. But this moment and these final minutes before sleep were a gift. Because I felt very strongly about how special the annual had been and knew how meaningful it would be to me for the rest of my life. I remember feeling a pang of heartbreak that it was ending. But knowing that heartbreak came from how wonderful it was. I was so thankful to have been able to experience it, to have been a part of it, and for each planned and unplanned moment that swirled together to create this unforgettable weekend in Fishkill. I really did not want that night to end. I held on to the remaining few minutes as the clock slowly lurched toward 4 a.m., it was a joyful, beautiful sadness, a longing to rewind time, even for a minute, and to experience even a tiny part of it again. To go back to the hotel, back to the open-air flea market, back to the boat, back to the restaurant, back to the diner, or back to any moment in between. And it was the perfect goodbye, because it was a temporary one. 
because deep down, we all knew we'd see one another again soon. The Cincinnati Toy Show weekend was only a little more than a month away. And before that, many of us would be together for events like the Columbus Toy Show and Nashville's ICCC in September. And we knew there would be another annual. After all, it was in the name. And we, as a club, as a group of collectors and friends, would see to it that there would be a second one. And I hope you would join us for the next one. And the one after that. 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 September 2nd. The morning came around quickly, and although my sleep was short, it had been a very deep, restful one. The events of the previous day had wiped me out, but my trip wasn't quite finished yet. I dressed, threw on my sweatshirt from the night before, and headed outside, across the parking lot, and into the I-84 diner for the final time. Tom Quinn saw me and waved me over. He looked bright-eyed and reasonably rested. Lauren Starkiller sat next to him, along with Tyler and Jacqueline Fedigan, and Mike Boniface and his friend Robin. I joined them in ordering breakfast, and we talked for the next 40 minutes or so. When we left, we took a few group photos outside the diner, and Tom flashed a Star Trek Vulcan salute. I had to look up what it was called, but it's a hand gesture where he formed a V with his fingers. The perfect image for a Star Wars club. One that still makes me smile. We walked back to the hotel, stopping by the tables on the patio. I hugged each of them, and we said our goodbyes. Chris and Steph Riley packed their Jeep, which was in front of the hotel's entrance, and I thanked them for creating the event and for giving all of us a weekend to remember. And I had the opportunity to thank Ron and to say goodbye to many of my friends who are about to leave for Queens, New York to spend the day with Yehuda. I ended the trip as I had started it, with a quick prayer of thanks. And with that, my time at the annual was officially over. I set my GPS for home and pulled out of the parking lot of the Comfort Suites in Fishkill. Four days after the event concluded, 
Richard Hutchinson published an article about his experience at the annual on the Fantha Tracks website. I asked Rich if he would share what he wrote with you, and he kindly obliged. So, Rich, how was your experience at the 2019 annual in Fishkill? So this is Richard Hutchinson from the Fanta Tracks and the Vintage Rebellion podcast, and I'm going to read out my Fanta Tracks article, which was dated September the 6th, 2019, an event review, the first annual an Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club. As a resident of the UK, I've heard of and admired from afar the US Star Wars Collectors Clubs, which have a strong presence of celebration. I visit the club's booths whenever I can many of which raise thousands of dollars for local charities on a regular basis. Over the last few years, I've witnessed these clubs creating t-shirts and other merchandise, host social events and gatherings, and finally have the most amazing meetups at each other's houses. Over the Labor Day weekend of 2019, I was proud to say that I was given the opportunity to experience one. So how did this come about? To be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I'm just a regular vintage and modern Star Wars collector who happily shares information here on Tracks or as co-host of the Vintage Rebellion podcast. I had an amazing experience at Celebration Chicago, meeting many old friends and new ones alike. And when I returned, I longed to do the same at Father's Farm later in the year. Not long after Celebration, I was made aware of an invite from a member of the Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club, and I contacted them to find out the details. As it just fit into my holidays, it seemed a no-brainer, and I booked quickly. Here is the rundown of the weekend. Note, I have not named some collectors to protect them and their collections. Friday the 30th of August. I arrived at Stewart International Airport in New York from Newcastle, UK via Dublin at approximately 5pm local time. My time was five hours ahead, so I was pretty tired. I was collected at the airport by Christopher Riley, one of the event's organisers, and Lee Harris who travelled all the way from Australia, which made my trip seem as though I was going to the local shops. I checked in at the hotel, quick shower, and headed out with the full intention of having a quick meet-up and an early night. I was quite nervous as I didn't know a lot of the attendees. I was told 77 would be there, and was worried about integrating. What would happen if I was ignored? Would I be able to join in with the cliques? What if I was considered an outsider? I needn't have worried. My first mistake was passing a room which sounded lively. I went in and was bear-hugged by Fonz Napolitano, and within three minutes was drinking vodka. Fonz is a super cool guy who knows how to have a good time, and has an infectious spirit which brings people along with him. I said hello to the growing number of attendees and joined in. Even with my apparently unusual accent, we all hit it off immediately, although I suspect someone was just nodding to me to be polite and never understood a word. I had arranged to meet John Paul Ragusa, current owner of the Imperial Gunnery, for a purchase that had made of most of the universe figures a few months earlier. I'm sure I only bought 10 or so, but somehow I brought 31 home. Add this to the Lord of the Rings items I had shipped to Ron Salvatore, and I had a sizable amount of luggage space taken up already, and I hadn't spent a penny yet. I managed to last until about 11pm, and had to call it quits. Saturday the 31st of August. So because I work early in the morning, in this case 2am, I headed back to the lobby at about 4. The receptionist thought I was odd. I am. And we had a good chat. Unsurprisingly, there was nobody about, so I went for a walk. I assumed that all of New York was the metropolis that we see on TV, and nothing could be further from the truth, as I saw stunning greenery, woods, mountains, trails, it had everything I love. Around 7am, I then meet for the first time the group that I spent most of the day with. Naraya Naik, Justin Haney, Blake Morgan and Dan LaSalle were heading to a local flea market at Stormville and had a spare seat in the car. 
The flea market was huge, and yet I was told later that there were still traders arriving, and that it was not considered that busy. We headed for the toy dealers, spotting other collectors as we wandered, and saw some vintage Star Wars and other toy lines. It gave a great indication as to how it much have looked in the 1990s. I didn't pick anything up there, but enjoyed an hour or so looking at a lot of antiques, unusual wood products, and vintage bric-a-brac. We had a few hours to kill, and I was delighted to hear that the guys wanted to visit John Paul's shop, called the Imperial Castle, located in Poland. The shop is every kid's dream, nice and clean, tidy, and featuring lots of toy lines. I picked up some more Master of the Universe and modern figures when I was there. John Paul showed us some of his recent pickups, and we were delighted to be given the opportunity to see some pretty recorded figures from his private collection that he brought for us to see. We jokingly took photographs pretending that they were our flea market finds. Mistake number two happened just after this. I was asked if I wanted to see Collector X's collection. My response should have been, hell yeah, but instead I replied, I'm easy, after all, I am their guest. We have a little thing about what to do, and we're heading for dinner when Collector X confirmed that we could go over, which we did. I don't have a lot on display, mind, we were warned. I have to say that if that collection was not a lot, then my collection may as well not exist. It was stunning. A full cabinet featuring other toy lines such as Master of the Universe and Knickerbocker, Lord of the Rings, including Corded. There were full runs of unreleased figures and many production items. I was amazed. But then we were taken down to the basement and saw what can be best described as a homage to the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this was just a small part of the collection. Boxes and boxes of pre-production and production of all the toy lines that I could think of. All of it in exceptional quality and many pieces still in sealed original packaging. We spent a lot of time asking questions and our host graciously answered. Although I was only there for an hour or so, I am by far the richer for the experience. Possibly my favourite part of the visit was when we were shown an old photo album of store displays and other pieces from the 1990s that he had acquired still living with his parents. I'm a story guy and I love listening to the history of the finds and where they went to. Skipping school to receive two truckloads of carded figures had to be a highlight, truly worth the cost of the whole trip alone. By the time we got back to the hotel, it was after lunch. By the time we got back to the hotel after lunch, it was nearly time for the panels to start. The first panel was hosted by David Quinn, host of Star Wars Prototypes and Production Podcast. It was a fascinating history of how the ESSWCC was founded and featured a rotation of many friends including founders Thomas Quinn and Jason Thomas. I loved this and could relate to everything what was said, from trepidation in the early days to wondering what I'm doing there in the first place. This panel proved that Star Wars has no boundaries, doesn't discriminate against age, colour, gender, knowledge, anything. We all laughed, smiled, and there were genuine tears from a few as to the impact these guys have had on each other, and now me. Be sure to check out the podcast episode when it is released. The second panel was hosted by my friend Matt George, co-author of the popular book Engineering and Empire. In this panel we learned the fascinating journey that Matt took in order to make this book happen, and he confirmed that Volume 2 is in the works. Can't wait to pick that up. Panel 3 was hosted by Jonathan McElwain, who has the most impressive collection of non-action figure-related Star Wars items I have seen. Jonathan has written many articles for the SWCA and is extremely generous of his time when answering my mostly dumb questions. If you have interested in items such as Dixie Cups, Pine Sol or party products, then you must make sure you catch one of Jonathan's panels if you can. You will see images of products that you are unlikely to see again. The final panel was hosted by Uber collector Duncan Jenkins, who took us on a journey through his favourite items from his collection. One can listen to Duncan's stories and easily lose track of time. Again, the stories behind the items are fascinating, and Duncan was keen to point out special features of the items which we could have easily missed otherwise. The night ended with room sales and beers. The room sales were great and I purchased a good amount of items. Everyone had space to move, which is a problem of celebration, to mingle and chat. 
It was a great night with no egos and friends looking out for each other. Just a shame I've been up since 2am, otherwise I would have spent more time there. I had more money, so scrub that. Sunday the 1st of September. Woohoo, I slept in till 5am. After breakfast, I met with Mac George, Lee Harris, where we were headed off to Ron Salvatore's house. Ron is a true legend in the hobby. He has helped me out immensely, many, many times. I'm not going into detail, but I will say that I described the collection at the time as a living history of Kenner. Initially, I went downstairs in the basement to view some incredible card figures and poster displays. When I went upstairs, I was gobsmacked viewing amazing condition production items and a vast array of pre-production and prototype pieces. Wax sculpts, acetates, internal paperwork and photography, one of the few chances to see all of these items in one place. Picture rows of cabinets begin with 1977 and moving on right through the toy line. Each section features production and pre-production items which relate to the figures. Small cards tell the stories behind key pieces and point out details such as alternative sculpts or design changes. I could have spent hours there and visited several times. It was not uncommon to sit outside and hear a collector say, what did you think about? For me to say, how the hell did I miss that? And head back up again. Store displays are incredibly difficult to display and I was really impressed with the solution. I've visited a lot of collections recently and all have given me the inspiration and focus to pause my purchasing, not that it's happened yet, and to focus on displaying what I have properly. I feel truly blessed to have seen this collection. The final part of my trip happened next which involved a boat cruise down the Hudson River. I was greeted by some family members of Ron and chatted for a while about the history of the valley and the area we were in, including which movies were shot where and what they thought of Veganfest. This really helped me on the boat journey as I could identify key features such as West Point, the Munitions Castle and a possible film location. This was the first chat I could have with Bill Fryer and it's always a delight to talk about the real football with someone from the States. Indeed, a lot of the conversation of the weekend was not Star Wars related. We talked about all things from battle reenactments, thanks Jason Thomas and Chris Riley, through to football, families, jobs, places we've been. It was just like hanging out with people that we've known all of our lives. Sadly, as I mentioned, I had to leave at this point as I had to work the next day, within 90 minutes of landing back at Newcastle, sadly. I missed the Monday adventure which involved a visit to Collector Zed's house, and I have been stunned by the photos I have seen. I will certainly return one day to visit this Della collection. As I sit and write this a week later, and read all the messages from others in the group, I have to say that this is one event I will never forget. Everyone was incredibly friendly and welcoming at times. There was no sense of rivalry or tribalism, indeed the very opposite. I am extremely proud to have visited this event and now consider myself a fully-fledged member of a club 3,000 miles away with people I now consider friends and family. There were not too many collectors from the UK heading to Anaheim in 2020, but I now have 77 new friends that I can meet up with. This was the first of the annual events, and it will definitely not be my last. Chatting with Christopher Riley, one of the chief organisers with his wife Stephanie and Ron Salvatore, he summed it up perfectly by saying, I have not added to my collection recently as I have put my money into this event, which is worth far more to me. Very powerful and true words. I won't list all of the collectors that I spent time with and chatted to because there were simply too many and I know I will miss some out by mistake. I will end this though by saying thank you to every one of you and you could not possibly imagine the impact that you have had on me. Now as an addition to this, sadly I can't make the second annual as much as I'd love to be there, but I've got a really good reason. I am getting married over in Cyprus and we will be thinking of you guys over the weekend. Have fun guys. One of my biggest regrets from the first year of the podcast was not doing a series on the 2019 annual. 
I had released two live recordings from the event, Saturday's Empire State Club panel and the Sunday Night Roundtable, but I never did a proper series afterwards, recapping the weekend. I intended to do a multi-part series after it ended and while still in the afterglow, but as I mentioned earlier, the weeks after the annual were packed with collector trips and events. And in between traveling, I put together a collection of episodes around the 2019 ICCC convention in Nashville. I was publishing one episode a month at that point, and the Nashville episodes carry through the rest of 2019 and into 2020. I had meant to return to the annual, and to revisit it when life slowed down. I think my initial plan was to eventually release a recap series ahead of the 2020 event. And in January, the Empire State Club announced that the second annual would take place in June and would be held in Fons Napolitano's region of Syracuse, New York. But then, the pandemic changed everything. The club held out hope through March and April that the virus circling the globe would fade quickly and that the quarantine all of us faced would end as abruptly as it began. But by May it was evident that COVID was a long-term challenge, and the club canceled the Syracuse Annual for that year, pushing it to 2021. And when the pandemic lingered for longer than expected, the annual was again moved, this time to August of 2022, for a return to Fishkill. It was during the earliest part of the quarantine that I began to work on this series. At that point, I had time to think, to look back on that weekend in August of the previous year and to reflect on how special it was. Using the podcast as a platform, I aim to do something that is rarely done in our hobby. We collectors experience these epic, larger-than-life meetups and moments, but we have very few of them on record. And as collectors, we obsess over the details, the provenance, and the history of the vintage and modern Star Wars memorabilia. But when it comes to our own collector trips, we rarely stop to look back and to record their histories for ourselves and for the benefit of others. In the moment, and shortly after, the details from the trip are sharp. They stand out. They can be easily recalled. The nicknames, the ridiculously funny moments, the profound ones, and the event-defining ones. We quote in-jokes to one another and fill messages on social media with pictures taken during the event, and captions that instantly bring us back to that time spent together. But with each passing month, those memories become fuzzier and fuzzier, until all we remember are a few personal moments and the ones from our photos and videos. And that's just how life works. It continues to roll forward. But it is nice to look back from time to time and to truly remember those formative experiences. So my goal with this series was to retell the story from the perspective of a collector who experienced it firsthand. I wanted to mix personal stories into the chronological, historical spine of the weekend. And I wanted to present why certain activities were planned, as well as their history or importance to the event or to the Hudson Valley area. I wanted to highlight how an event like the 2019 Annual blended the best parts of collecting with the most connective parts of a club meetup. It was a mammoth undertaking. 
even though it took place over the course of four days, going back and trying to create an overview of that Labor Day weekend was overwhelming. I remember starting out by creating a bulleted list of all of the main activities of the weekend. And then I started to add some of the moments and smaller events I felt were worth mentioning. Because in many ways, during a trip like this one, a lunch at a diner was just as important as a boat cruise on the Hudson River. Every minute of the annual had the potential to be something special, and the possibilities were as expansive as our imaginations. But I really wanted to take you along with me. Whether you were there with me that August, or if you joined me for the first time over these past few episodes, I wanted you to have more than a glimpse through a fence. Because events like these are really open to collectors who want to be part of a larger community. And I want you to join us at this year's event, and at next year's event. Because the annual doesn't happen without you and me. And as Ron said in our conversation, the intent behind the event is in the name. Like many parts of Star Wars, the annual signifies hope. It reminds us that as long as we're a club and that we care about being together, a collector's weekend for members of any and all regional Star Wars clubs will exist. It will continue year after year and will give us a glorious opportunity to descend upon a town together, to all stay at that same hotel, to tour collections as a unit, and to experience the magic and the moments only found at the annual. Thank you for listening to another episode in the annual 2019 series. Although this episode is the third and final part in my personal recap of the event, I still have another episode or two about the annual in store for you. And I think you'll really enjoy them. I'm David Quinn, and this is another episode of Star Wars Prototypes and Production.